How does it feel to treat me like you do? I'm up hip in the harbor, and I'll tell you who you are. I say, how does it feel? How does it feel to treat me like you do? How does it feel? How, how does it feel? Say, how does it feel? How, how does it feel? I don't really know the words to that song, sorry. Beyond the very, very catchy um, chorus there. Well, it is a historic day in America where uh, a Rubicon that many people thought would never be crossed is, in fact, officially, even though we all knew it was coming, they kind of soften it up. Uh, and honestly, uh, the, only, the theory that makes sense to me about who leaked the, the thing uh, is that it was one of the conservatives for the very purpose of staggering the horror here. So instead of it being an announcement, yeah, we broke through. We did this. We have severed this connection. We have, uh, we've cut this social Gordian knot. We've, we've done it. And have everyone have to process that like instantaneously. They figured that just if their goal is to allow this to be metabolized without an uh, unacceptable amount of blowback, uh, it's in their interest to stagger that reaction. So you get two days, two little bursts of horror instead of one maybe bigger one. Now, of course, not saying that that would have led to anything meaningful happening. But if you've got the option and if you're there sitting on the fucking uh, if you're sitting at the Supreme Court, you're one of those disgusting Federalist Society goblins who clerk for these people or you're one of the demons in robes themselves, one of the archons themselves, <clears throat> you have the option of letting it all go up in one day, or you, uh, you prep the ground a little bit. See what's going to happen. Like, oh, how much response really emerges? Oh, look at this. There's basically nothing. You know? Uh, it's it's, it's more, way more useful. I mean, I could see maybe a liberal insanely... Uh, releasing it thinking, oh, everyone will be so horrified that they'll be scared into uh, backing down. And, you know, I guess it comes down to, do you think that uh, the person who leaks a document like that is more likely to be fucking stupid or evil? Of course, in the broader sense, all these people are evil. They're upholding an evil institution. I'm talking about their their self-conception. Like, do they adhere to a model of virtue that uh, has been propagated now uh, by, like, uh, the political economic model of, you know, uh, contemporary technological capitalism that we live in? There is, a, like, a model of citizenship. There is a model of, uh, of political virtues uh, that 
adhere to liberal principles. And I've talked before about how, you know, Marxism is part of this tradition. Like, like the, the emergence of like liberal uh, concepts of right uh, are key to unlocking the, uh, oh, oh, um, the like class consciousness of the workers. If you don't have those notions of like liberal right, you can't organize your alienation politically. It's the language you speak of the alienation and, and, and the liberal subjectivity that you're being forced into by living in a capitalist mode of production. Is liberal. Now, that's not to mean that if you get communism, we're all going to stay little liberal subjects forever. The process of fighting for it transforms social relations, transforms our values, destroys bourgeois sentimentality, and replaces it with, like, real solidaristic uh, uh, social, like, consciousness. And that's the hardest thing to talk about when you're trying to, uh, you know, sketch out... um, the contours of, of ideological difference is that the process of like making socialism is an action. It is not a thought, but right now everybody who adheres to socialism is only thinking there is no praxis, no meaning like rubber hits the ground. You have to make life or death decisions, praxis, not saying people don't live making life or death decisions every day. I'm saying that they are not doing it as part of a organized structured Class-based project, the thing that makes effort reinforce, that, that reinforces your efforts instead of letting them be diffused and absorbed and, and uh, sublimated. And so that's why you have this uh, idiot confusion where people, some people, idiots, people who are trying to, uh, who have ulterior motives and are just trying to convince themselves that they're making the right decision, uh, Look at liberal subjectivity and say, oh, look, the fact that capitalism is liberal means that uh, the opposite is uh, Marxist. Like the the crudest, like uh, blood and soil reactionary uh, identity categories that uphold capitalism are right, because that's the only alternative. Like the thing, the, the, the social conservative, the, the conservatism that they uh, that they adhere to was a fundamental building block of the cultural and political hegemony of capitalism, and it still is in certain geographic locations. It's just now that we have this other uh, and more advanced capitalism, and in its center you have a more literally advanced technologically socially capitalism. And so now, because capitalism has gone way past its historic uh, uh, sell-by date, like for a, and this is why, like capitalism is progressive to a point, and then it just becomes destructive. And we've been in that point for a very long time now. But that liberal subjectivity keeps creating like the values that end up being organized around. Uh, like the broader liberal and socialist critique of modern life. And 
there is an alternative value system. And I will say that it is one that looks at the evils of capitalism, the evils of hierarchy that capitalism has created to sustain, and makes them good. Now, I'm not saying that the people who believe this stuff are necessarily evil, because they're not making a choice any more than any of us are, to adhere to a set of cultural values. They are largely imprinted upon us. And so at the level of Supreme Court uh, clerics, you've got, yeah, sure, they're both evil, but one of them thinks themselves to be good in the sense that we understand it, speaking through the the... Uh, understood language of individual autonomy, individual freedom, rights, the market, property, all that stuff that's built on top of like the real machinery of exploitation. And that is superstructural, but which actually forms like the mindset and value system of people within it, namely liberals. Within the system, liberals. Because if you're not a liberal, you're not in the system, you will get spit out. So you've got at that level, you've got this evil person who thinks they're good, as you know, we understand those terms, and then you've got an evil person who knows they're evil and thinks that that is good. Now, I know that's Manichean, but it's less so when you remember that we're not talking about like the uh, like defining characteristics of human beings. Like We're not saying people are evil. We're saying that You have to identify not just the structure of capitalism, but also it's supporting superstructures that reinforce it. And I'm sorry, all those traditional values are all part of that set of uh, support structures. And what they're supporting is now this This localized extraction and real estate, the remnant, the literal remnant of the land-based social order that capitalism supplanted. The last barons, we've talked about this before, the last true aristocrats, as in people who own their wealth, not to financial abstractions that flow across the globe in an endless invisible sea and could never really be uh, held, they hold land They hold what is underneath land. They hold the labor of others. They hold those things. And they're still able, and yes, they're at the mercy of these global flows. And the fact that they are is what drives them insane because they understand that they are fundamentally not free in the way they imagine themselves to be. And that's what drives their neurotic pursuit of the death drive through the expression of uh, the annihilatory politics of fascism. And again, it's not like the the version of these liberal uh, values that we get from liberal society are bad. They're racially essentialist in their own way. They, uh, They are as dedicated in their own way practically in the day-to-day to the maintenance of capitalism, but 
in them is the seed of the next thing. It's the next form of consciousness that has to emerge if humans are going to put take on the machine. If you cannot have solidarity across racial gender lines, if the multiplicity of like humans under liberal freedom cannot be uh, recognized, then you can't have sufficient organization to overthrow capitalism. You will be defeated. You will either be absorbed into the thing itself or isolated and annihilated. Those are your options. Just ask the Strasser brothers. If you're defending capitalism in crisis, like a a land-based feudal remnant capitalism, extractive capitalism, call it, rather than circulatory capitalism, which, of course, again, they're totally connected to one another. But it's a it's a can't it's like a fucking tumor. It doesn't recognize the body as itself because it's been too traumatized, not by uh, economic insecurity, economic. Uh, uh, what's the word they always use sarcastically? Economic anxiety. Not really. Not in the real true sense. But psychically, yes. The position of precarity when you're supposed to be at the top of a hierarchy. And there's someone above you that is alien to you and that you can't defeat. That drives you crazy. And that is what our American and worldwide small bourgeois are doing. They're going fucking insane. And the liberals are going insane, too, because they're trying to adhere to this politics of liberation that only makes everything worse for everyone. And so instead of imagining a future, an emancipatory future, they imagine a sadistic uh, fantasy of punishment for those they think are responsible. Only instead of it being the other, it's themselves in the mirror. It's whatever they most hate about themselves and what makes them adherent to that system instead of fighting against it. It's their whiteness. It's their maleness, whatever. And that gets turned into a fucking totem. And anybody who wants to stand behind that banner gets eliminated. Now, of course, what's really happening is is that poor people are just being fed to a thresher, no matter who's in charge. But the order they get put in changes depending on the political uh, uh, machine. These two insane schizoid halves of the bourgeois psyche. And people want to say, why the hell are the Democrats like this? And I think, and I understand, they're terrible. They're, they're awful. It's, it's a joke. It's a joke of a party. But I think people who want them to be more confrontational, you know, like do things like, for example, like throw Trump in jail. You know, uh, have, uh, tell the Supreme Court to fuck off or like uh, uh, they say, like, why are you adhering to these institutions? Why do you have this? Because the institutions are what they actually believe in. They don't believe in being in charge. In fact, they don't want to be in charge because they know the machine is a murder machine and they imagine themselves good. Remember, these people want an excuse to not be responsible for what the machine is doing. So they adhere to these norms to, as, as the buffer between them and responsibility. The other side doesn't care about that because they have taken responsibility. In fact, they want to take responsibility. They want their politics to be a ritual affirmation of the virtue of destroying the weak. So if liberals really were to push the way that people are yelling at them to, they know in their minds, if they can't say it out loud, that if they decide we're not uh, adhering to norms and therefore there's no 
remaining benefit to keeping us around to keep things smoothly moving because now we can't assure ourselves of our dominion over you, then it's over. Then they will just, all of them, including all of the good ones who convince themselves they're doing what they have to do, the leading spear of the pussy uh, vacillators. But the hardcore is going to say, yeah, the people who actually have guns in this fucking country, the people who actually pull triggers, and not I'm, talk- I'm not talking about the 5% of dipshits in this country who own half the guns. You know, it's, it's, it's like 3% of the population owns half the guns. It's like, they're like fucking Funko Pops. That's all they are. And it makes sense because the gun is just the consumer ritual uh, uh, symbol for your lost yeoman liberty that you fetishize. You think you're a yeoman, even though everything around you shows that you have no self-sufficiency, no control over your life. But you've got a gun. And that means that if they come for the rest of it, even though it's all shit and you're miserable, if they try to come for your, like, uh, crumb of, of pleasure, they'll fucking shoot you. And they know that if they fight you, they'll win. So that's why they're not afraid of it going there. The thing I want to ask everybody who wants the Democrats to pursue a maximally confrontational position vis-a-vis norms, I mean, it's futile anyway because they're not going to do it and there's nothing you can say to make them, but I'm just saying theoretically. I think those people, because it might help them redirect their actions in their lives because, my God, everything seems so terrible and nobody knows what to do. Hey, maybe you could see what's in front of you more if you weren't freaking out Do you have the horses for that? So it's whatever you're fantasizing about, your best case scenario of like resistance. Ask yourself, do you have the fucking horses for that? As Tom Wilkinson said in Michael Clayton. You think you have the horses for that? Because they will escalate. I know people say they don't care about norms, but they are not just in charge now. You know, like if they really didn't care about like, I don't understand this. The Democrats will say that, like, the coup almost happened. Like, this thing almost occurred. My God. We almost had a, a, an overthrow. Why didn't we? Because they decided not to. That was it. The center of gravity of, like, you know, capital and its cultural superstructure, the ball of shit, the human feces that gravitate around it. Uh, They have no respect for the norms. They like them uh, to the degree that they keep you at arm's length. And so if there is some breach of norms, it will be like, okay, you told us, because... The center of gravity of the rights decided, no, we're not going to let Trump do this. Even though they could have. They really could have. One of the big reasons they decided not to is because they trusted that the Democrats would keep playing along. Like, people have asked, like, what if it was Trump versus Bernie instead of Trump versus uh, Biden? What happens then? And it wouldn't be because of Trump's brilliant coup. It would have been because of the actions 
of Democrats. And so that means, you know, wait, but get the horses, man. You need to get the horses. You got to get the team set up before you even think about trying to escalate. And so that means I would like to hear less people talking in maximalist terms and more people uh Doing their uh, response at a more intimate level, I guess, uh, saying stuff that for one way or another, uh, if you thought it really mattered, you wouldn't make public. Let's put it that way. Because that is the main thing that makes me discount uh, the validity, the ability of like, you know, the left as in like leftist people with of a leftist social affect and like uh, uh, adherence and side. Uh Like, do you have uh, what it takes to get something out of a raising of the stakes, I guess I'd say. Because, hey, if you want to go down fighting and cleanse yourself of responsibility, you can. But it's really, at that point, isn't it about ego then? Isn't it just the death drive of itself? Isn't it just the mirror image of the fascist? It's just, fuck it, let's be legends. Now people say John Brown. Uh, I don't know. You can disagree with me, but I, I don't know how you can look at the last 20 years of America, American life, and say that um, spectacular acts of violence can be meaningful uh, shapers of like social life, like have a sustained impact on uh, like the, the, the balance of powers, like the war of position between the sides that you're supposed to be fighting. The send, I know, and the thing is, like, what is the site? I don't know the site. That's where I have to cop, cop out. I mean, I'd say the workplace. See, someone says I feel like a defeatist. I don't want to spend my juice spouting off on here. I don't want to spend any anima I have accidentally. I don't want to dump my orgone. And do fantasies. Because that's, it, at the end of the day, it robs you. It does. It robs you of your essence. But I mean, take heart here. Like, if you, if you do have faith in your fellow citizens, like enough of them that if called to the moment would rise to the occasion, if you believe that, and this is what it boils down to, Right. Do you think that there is that group of people or not? Whereas right now, you can't see them because they are not organized. They are not disciplined. They are not shaped in any way. They're protean. That doesn't mean they're not active. That doesn't mean they're not on a path. It means that identifying the specific formations is almost impossible because the level that, you disp- the, that you're talking about, the national level, is a barren wasteland has been rendered so, has been irradiated, basically, by the fucking atomic bomb of the Internet. Mm. 
But I mean, my God, if you can support strikes, do it. Fuck. If you if if at the local level there are like candidates for city office, people who like control budgets, like who actually gets to hold guns, for example, you know, uh, that's certainly worth doing. But like, if if you come to it from the imperial the, the wasteland, the, the Sauron eye that we're all glancing through to try to talk to ourselves in a legible language, because that's the thing we want to communicate. With like this hive mind, and we can only do that if we're talking about common reference points, which are by definition deterritorialized. They're pulled from their local context. They're sterilized and turned into just uh, fuel for arguments. I'm going to put up. I'm going to put up some signage. I'm going to put up my uh, my posters. Don't worry about it. Or my portraits. And, like, the answer to, like, what to do is, it's like, you know, uh, it's like the Ghostbusters PKE meter where they're, like, trying to find ghost vibes. If you do something and it makes that sense of hopelessness and anxiety that everybody talks about all the time, that they're filled trapped by, if it makes it go away a little bit, it might be the right thing to do. If it intensifies it, but like you find yourself enraptured by the intensity, uh, then you might have just replaced one fix for another. But again, that only comes from a personal experience rooted in a time and place that I can't speak to. I know that sucks, but it's all I have. And if I try to, if I start trying to reason myself away from that to indulge myself or anybody else, I'm going to just, I'm going to lose the sense of, uh, of that that I have now. Like what I'm talking about, the feeling I'm talking about is a feeling I have right now. And you might say, oh, that's easy for you to do. You're posting, you know, you're doing internet bullshit. It's like, right, but that's also my job, you know? That's not very many people's job. Most people have different jobs. And the big problem is you got people whose jobs are dependent on this, this pleasure coming at an abstract level, that they're going to be incentivized to get others to think that way too. Like this is the real trap at the, at the, at the center of the entire project of trying to uh, organize a left online, which is all we've been doing since Bernie, and all we have been able to do. Think of this white blank room as my mind cube. So for me, it comes down to, do people like it? Enough people? Do people keep wanting to hear me? Then it beats digging ditches, and I have time to do other things. That means I got to be able to take the hit. On you are being a, uh, you're saying exactly uh, what you need to hear to avoid, like, really doing something. And it's like, yeah, that's probably true. That's why you shouldn't listen to people like us about everything. But, you know, everybody is a cybernetic being and they have to spend time online. And so the question is, what are they going to spend it on, you know? Ah. And what's maddening is, is that we can't know because, like, we're all waiting for some moment of truth. And, like, 
The good news is those are real. The bad news is uh, it's not like there's one moment of truth. Every moment is a moment of truth. It's just whether it's degree, to the degree it ends up being retrospectively like a hinge point to your life. And that means you can't know you're in the, um, at the moment of truth um, when it happens. Unless you assume, as it's happening, that every moment is the moment of truth. So that's what you got to do. You got to act like every moment is the moment of truth. Because it's not about what your uh, opinions are on all the topics of the day. It matters what what are you valuing when you interact with the world and have to make choices. I know this is all, God, I hear it coming out and I'm like, I can understand absolutely hating this bullshit. But here I stand, I could do no other. I know it's a fucking cop-out, but like, you know, at a, certain, at a certain level, you have to assume the universe is benevolent. It's the only way for anything else to make sense. And yes, it is bougie as hell. I, I would say technically artisanal, but basically, yeah. Certainly not the type of uh, subjectivity that socialist struggle will build. And that makes sense because I've never really carried out any socialist struggle. I've never gone out on strike. Like I've interacted with, uh, you know, uh, volunteer organizations, but that at a certain level is, is, is not where the rubber meets the road because of the volunteer aspect. One of the things that shapes movements towards uh, effectiveness is necessity. In fact, it's the thing. It's the Darwinian accelerator. So, it's a grim state of affairs, certainly. Where, how did we get here? We might ask ourselves, if we were David Burt. We might ask ourselves, how did we get here? And our friends, uh, uh, Panich and uh, uh, Gidlin, I believe, are answering that question in their book, The Making of Global Capitalism. Look at that. Look at that fucking segue. Look at me just ease into this material. Ah. So... We are now at the stage when, according to uh, this book, according to uh, Pandan, we go from a global capitalist system being knit into like a structure to one that uh, becomes like fully realized. The tipping point, basically, where a, a alternative models can no longer stand against it. Like during the Cold War, you had this real balance of forces. And it wasn't just between communism and capitalism. It was also like just uh, like the indigenous bourgeois arising in the uh, recently uh, colonized world. Like that's its own. Like you have class formation happening at like this geometric rate in the former colonial world. And it doesn't build just communism. It it builds its own bourgeois politics that then work themselves out. but they're all contending, and it's contending over resources and over, uh, 
over building a technological social machine capable of self-defense. And this is when the fall of the Soviet Union happens. The Western left is buck-broken. The, uh, the insurgent political tides in the rest of the world are just assassinated and cooed and bombed out of existence. That leads to the situation where we now have a fully realized global capitalism. Not one force among forces contesting over the space, the global space, but a, domin- a fully, uh, fully dominated one. Uh, and so these chapters are telling that story, which is a story of uh, breaking the re- left at home and abroad, basically, and then uh, reimposing a, a new uh, deal, basically, between labor and capitalism that would uh, replace uh, waged demands, shares of profit, or uh, like claims of profit, social claims of profit, uh, with uh, borrowed money, with credit, basically. Uh, a further uh, immiseration, right? You, t- you take the land away from the peasant, so that all they can sell is his time in exchange for money and like have that relationship like form a psychic bond. Like he's alienated, but the more money he makes, the less alienated he feels, right? Because he's able to justify why he's working to himself and not hate himself for doing it, which is how you feel when you feel dominated. It does legitimately uh, reduce alienation to get that higher percentage of profit that you get to demand socially as part of a union. We're going to replace that money with money that you are going to borrow from basically your bosses, which means you have to pay it back, which means it's never really your money. So instead of saving for a retirement, when the interest that you've made on all those money that you made and then was able to wisely save and buy a house with, thanks to huge government-subsidized uh, uh, suburbanization. All of it bought with labor. Like, the sweat of my brow bought this Cadillac. Now it's a fucking bank in Delaware bought this Cadillac, and they're letting me use it. Introduces a, a, a new level of hopelessness and, and immiseration and conscious alienation, a felt sense of compulsion within their relationship to their jobs. So this is just putting a neutron bomb in the heart of like the, the social and spiritual health of the working class. This is like a psychic, psychic war. This is a psyop as much as anything else. Um, And now it's in terminal decline and all the political structures that it needs to sustain itself are coming into critical conflict, even though they don't really need to. We could accommodate this transition much more smoothly, but we can't because we only have political institutions to carry out that will that's counter to profit. And they're fucking sclerotic. They're gone. Which is why I was saying everything is going to have to come from the fucking like burned over uh, wasteland. It's going to come like from the purging of fire. Like I know that's apocalyptic.
but that forgets to that forgets the fact that the apocalypse is always happening. So imagining an apocalypse in the future is not some uh, fantasy rendition of like an uh, an imagined uh, world. It is just a universalization of particular conditions of the present. So if we think of it that way, if we think of the apocalypse already having happened, right? Well, there are people who live there. It sucks, but they're there. There's stuff. There's the refuse. There's the infrastructure that we've built. And that means life is going to find a way, as Ian Malcolm said. And we're all going to be part of it, one way or the other. And acting from the heart is the only guide we can have, because everything else just leads you to apocalypse. Like, when we talk about politics, it ends in apocalypse. And that means, well, and I have to act like that's this day. And if you, you really ask yourself, what does that mean? This is my last day. Does it mean you go suicide bomb some fucking uh, conservative? I don't think so. I think most of us would want to be around the people we fucking love. I think. I think that would be most people's number one choice. And so I do think that, like, the, the, the brain virus of, of capitalism, which has, like, decapitated us and, and fully, sky, uh, fully skynetted us, is also dependent on a system that is destroying itself. And that people are going to pers- persist beyond the destruction of those systems. The thing is, it's not going to all happen at once. It's going to be a process of a combined and uneven apocalypse, as it is now. And if there's no recovery from an apocalypse, okay, if they're saying, well, no, four degrees, it doesn't matter, everything's gone. Well, okay, then, so what? Are you going to act like Kiefer Sutherland in fucking melancholia? Or are you going to hang around? And if you hang around, what are you going to do with your time? That's all that you can do with these questions. These things that haunt us. And I know they haunt me. It's just to remember that. And I still say that as long as there is life of any kind, there is consciousness, a consciousness that we are eternally connected to. You can call it God, whatever. But I think you have to believe that in some way to justify doing anything other than hurting other people for your own narrow pleasure. I honestly don't know how you can justify in the current conditions, an altruistic politics. Why wouldn't every other thing tell you, get off on hurting other people? Like the end of, like Salo. Like that is what Pasolini is talking about in that movie. That is the end stage of capitalism in final paroxysms of violence, or of uh, collapse. At the very end of collapse, all you have are dominators and dominated, and all you have is this... uh, displaced horror at the uh, one's impending annihilation that a sovereign consciousness that does not admit any connection to anything else 
cannot uh, reconcile. It just can't. So you have to smash into the wall. And the way to do that is to seek a life of domination to pleasure, to create a politics of domination and pleasure. And that is the appeal of fascism. And that's why so much of the left uh, like militant response to the right is ineffective, is because it's carried out by people who just want to fight other people. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying a chunk. And that has an effect. But that's not to blame anybody for what they do. They're doing what they think is best. What you have to do, you, not they, have to do is ask yourself, what what am I adhering to? Because if you want to destroy, make somebody pay, even given the idea that it is all going to, it's all over, and there's no turning back from annihilation, if you still think someone has to pay, and that's the only thing you can care about. And then you're going to appeal pleasure at others' expense. First physical, like, look at my life. Look what I have compared to what other people don't. Look at the pleasures I get to feel versus the miseries they get to feel. Eventually, that, of course, goes away. Because that pesky, thin slice of profit starts to burn out of the equation. The ability to uh, adhere and hold on to surplus and sit on it and, and, and enjoy a life of leisure, not have to productively work. Not fake work, productively work. That's, no one, that's not given up willingly. And then even at the end where, at every point, the rational, logical, long-term best interest to do would be to steer out of this. We're not. We're steering into it. That's because capitalism is not a rational system. It is, an, it, it is rational on its own satanic terms in that it adheres to what extracts uh, surplus, what derives profit from transaction. And that is domination of one over another. And that is, once you have that social relationship intact, it is its own God. It is its own rational structure. But it is only incidentally connected to humanity. We are all trying to, you know, grasp towards some best time, what time to do, what time to spend on earth. What do we adhere to? What do we care about? We're all just trying to do that. Like, that's what we're born into. And then we are presented with, political relations that guide us towards a uh, relationship with each other that makes it impossible to imagine anything other than domination. The long-term best interest would have been a, uh, a glide path down from the consumption mania of the 80s uh, that, led to, that went to the 70s. A coordinated uh, reversal of, of capital flows from the center to the periphery, basically. And doing that new deal for the world, like an actual new deal for the world, that the Bretton Woods people thought they were building. And in the conditions 
the political and economic conditions of the late 40s, they were. But then the contest started, you know, the, 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 the clock of history kicked in and it was only a matter of time. And yeah, like natural law, human nature, all that stuff. The Lockean tradition is a religion. It's a fant- It's a, a. It's a. It's essentially the the last remnant of paganism. It says that the relationship of a person to a piece of property is essentially magical. All rationality within capitalism dissolves at that initial moment. Of extraction. It says that by dominating, one has proprietary relationship to. Now, that is not an inherent human belief. That is not something that we are born with. We are capable of operating outside of that paradigm, one where the notion of ownership is not socially reproducible or conceivable. Those, that's what David Graeber writes about in his book. But those guys all got fucking steamrolled by the people who had built a machine powered by this reversed satanic logic that would benefit the people at the top at the expense of those at the bottom. It literally is a pact with Satan. And it is the dark like black mass of capitalism is in that, is in that uh, transition. That, and that's why it's not about, like, uh, people need religion. It's that you can't escape religion. Belief is embedded. The rationalist worldview is just a, is a pagan adherence to, uh, to domination as, uh, as domination as signal of uh, virtue, of worth, of desert. This is this is a this is a metastasis within the human psyche that turns into a fucking brain tumor that is now in the process of completely consuming the patient. And that's why you have the schizophrenia of like the wars of religion of the early modern period, these people fighting over Protestantism or Catholicism, all of them trying to live, trying to hold on to one system of values uh, in the face of another that is just tearing at the roots. Because you go first from, you know, there is no uh, property relationship that can, that can transcend every social uh, value, because that's what it's about. It says there's no social thing that can transcend property, right? Like, if the global economy does collapse and and and, uh, capitalism is destroyed, at no point uh, would anyone who, like, really adheres to capitalism call that a failure of capitalism. It is a god. It cannot fail. It can only be failed. 
everything that's happening has to happen and should be happening according to capitalism. And there's bumps along the way and there's criers, but the thing is happening. The thing that's happening is profits are being accumulated because everything else, all their assumptions about what human virtue is, human value is, what the good life is, what effective altruism is, boils down to wealth, to property and the distribution of it, which is based on this global system of extraction. Can't be disembedded from it. Okay. Getting back to this dang book. I'm very sorry. I keep, uh, I haven't even gotten to it yet. So this is the moment here when the thing comes into dominance of the planet. And it's uh, a crisis that in the U.S. leads to, so this is Chapter 7, Renewing Imperial Capacity. So you have a crisis in the, in the American economy, the unpegging of the dollar, uh, uh, the neoliberal turn. And one of the things that's pushing that is that this crisis creates a unified business political front that brings together all the disparate strains of American capitalism that are often at battle at the political level are often like the legislative level, policy level. They're often in conflict with one another because they have different short-term interests. Uh, but like this crisis necessity all pushes them in the same direction so that they can effectively address the moment. Meanwhile, the labor movement is totally uncoordinated and cannot uh, deal with the crisis because their people are trying to, you know, strike for better working conditions. They're struggling in their lives and they're trying to make their lives like less miserable. These people are all sitting in fucking uh, uh, country clubs and basting like hams and saunas and eating $10,000 uh, endangered uh, ostrich eggs. And they get to sit around with their giant vats of money and talk. They don't need to go and uh, sit one among many at a fucking local labor uh, uh, meeting like, and have to sit through the roll call and all this shit. And like what? So that you can, you know, uh, maybe have a strike and who knows what happens as opposed to get to sit down with uh, politicians and, and tell them what you want. So they're able to effectively... Uh, address the shared interest in making this re-shift uh, not towards that soft landing I was talking about that would have replaced consumption with greater, not, not necessarily uh, uh, wages, but greater worker control of production. And that would have dismantled the consumerist imperative that made exploitation have to be exponentially increased within the system in order to maintain profit. If you get rid of that, you can produce for consumption, especially since we have the computing capacity to administer a technological state sufficient to allow us to, uh, you know, uh, leave a lot of things to machinery that we have programmed, that we have reprogrammed. The T-800, the fucking term... Uh, Arnold from T2. So there's a unified front that pushes for legislation, that pushes uh, to do things like insist that when the New York City needs a bailout, because New York is now like one of these European uh, countries that's seen their balance sheet go in the wrong direction because of inflation, uh, because there's nowhere for this alienation to go. It's being dissipated. 
these organized business uh, class is able to insist on a bailout that leads to one of the first American structural adjustments, first structural adjustments anyway, where uh, New York was going to have to cut salaries of public employees and pension contributions and, and benefits significantly uh, and, and cut hiring and, like, you know, reduce the quality of life of the city. Uh, and that set the tone for what was going to come. The last gasp of, like, the, the electoral left, the Democratic Party and the, the labor unions behind it, like the AFL-CIO, the last gasp of their influence in government and the Keynesianism that, that was the ba- their, uh, like, base political understanding the basis of their ideology, was uh, this bill that was uh, passed around uh, and, and argued over in Carter's term, the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act. Because this was, because we say, like inflation is this uh, push and pull, uh, or uh, that monetary policy, government fiduciary, uh, like money policy comes down to uh, the, do you favor keeping inflation low or do you favor uh, keeping unemployment low. You can't have both. That's the whole premise of, of the monetarist notion. And so uh, the, 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 the idea that uh, you, could actually, you should actually deal with this by uh, just giving everybody jobs, which, again, means giving people democratically more control over production, more control over work, because this is not work that is being compelled by the profit motive. It's politically generated. It means it is the will of like an organized section of the American uh, broad working and middle class. So they got this bill together, got good old Hubert Humphrey, who is one of the most tragic figures in American history. He's like one of the one of the uh, one of the firebrand progressives of the party uh, in the early or during World War during the New Deal era, he had been mayor of uh, Minneapolis. Uh, he uh, saw the creation of a civil rights plank for the forty-eight uh, Democratic uh, uh, platform that led to the walkout of the Dixiecrats, uh, and then he becomes uh, he runs against. Kennedy, but he can't beat that smile. Then he becomes Johnson's VP because he could just lead him around by the pecker. And then he's forced to publicly support a war in Vietnam that he doesn't believe in. Gets just narrowly defeated by uh, Nixon, who was secretly sabotaging the negotiations in Vietnam to extend the conflict. Which, if there had been a peace treaty signed before November, Hubert Humphrey would have won in a landslide. Or at least, considering how close it was, I think a very good chance of winning comfortably and certainly narrowly. I don't want to get too specific, whatever. But that was an intervention that cost the lives of millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians and and tons of thousands of Americans. And he just had to take it. Johnson knew about it from wiretaps, but they couldn't make it public because that would admit that they had wiretaps. And it would make it would undermine the credibility of the institutions. So Humphrey, Humphrey uh, Carter does not really support Humphrey Hawkins. It's really just this. Uh, it's a baby of these, you know, uh, these old guard 
liberals like Humphrey and Teddy Kennedy, and it gets passed, but in such a watered-down form that it has no enforcement capacity. So there's no gov- during this time of crisis, there's no government commitment to full employment. Instead, we get the Volcker shock. Instead of that, and it isn't either or, instead of a full employment, we get the Volcker shock, the huge jump in interest rates that leads to a massive recession, uh, but that also breaks the inflationary cycle, the spiral. You see double-digit unemployment by 1982. Uh, and like Reagan was very unpopular at that point. There was a lot of buyer's remorse around him, and they got... The, the Republicans got killed in the midterms. But thanks to that fucking real business cycle, uh, after a bottoming out, the fundamentals uh, reinserted themselves. And, you know, you got some defense spending. You got this new uh, credit, credit economy. Wages aren't going up anymore. But, hey, you know, there's still there's still a consumer lifestyle that's accessible. Uh, but it's at the cost of any coordinated working class political power. Uh, And so wages aren't going to go up anymore. So what's going to fill the gap now is going to be emptied by, you know, manufacturing by, uh, by the consumer power of like this middle-class American, uh, this middle, this bourgeois aspiring American working class. Uh, and the answer is uh, financial derivatives. They're going to chop up every transaction, turn it into another transaction. They're going to use a, spa- a, a temporal fix. There's two fixes that happen in the 70s. Uh, one is a spatial fix where manufacturing is taken into the periphery and like capitalism is developed peripherally uh, at the expense of you know uh, industrial capital, which is too expensive thanks to the uh, labor demands of an organized working class with political uh, influence. It's, it's got to go elsewhere to be continue to be profitable. And so that is a spatial fix, moving capital from one place to another. And then there's the temporal fix of turning this trade network into a synthetic world uh, of sales on hypothetical future iterations of this object. Turning, turning uh, things into theoretical, synthetic capital. It's a, it's a, a simulated virtual economy. Uh, and it is at the total control of the high-level uh, monetary decision makers and in institutions like uh, the Federal Reserve and the IMF. There's no democratic accountability for this economy. Because it's all controlled by things like interest rate that are not politically determined. So what we get instead is uh, cheap money everywhere, uh, new places to invest, new hypothetical fortunes to be made, uh, and new uh, ways for foreign capital to come back to the United States. Oh boy, I might have to make this one a two-parter. I've really, I've really uh, went too far afield here. Uh, I have. Hmm. We'll see how far I can get. Um, so, 
you get derivatives markets through deregulating industry. Like a lot of the reasons you didn't have these is because there were limits on things like interest rates that banks could give on the deposits that limited how much money you could make in these hypothetical economies. Uh, and they got rid of those. And so it exploded. But also with it exploded uh, regulations in the form of uh, in guarantees of bailout of uh, of a new structure of too big to fail institutions that have an implicit understood relationship with like uh, the central banks to provide liquidity in the case of crisis. Uh, so that is state intervention in the economy. Big time. This is cardinal sin, according to neoliberal economics. And yet it is the basis for everything else. And in this context, the working class is just dissolved like fucking a tooth in Coca-Cola. Uh, the UAW starts making concessions uh, and backing down from their uh, commitment to, you know, uh, continually rising wages. They assess, they assent to a lot of out- outsourcing and, uh, uh, and deindustrialization, the moving of uh, factories from the unionized Rust Belt to the uh, union-free uh, southern southeast and then later southwest. Uh, and so the wage line flattens completely. So there's no raises in wages for 30 years, but tax cuts are supposed to now fill the gap. Okay. Yes. You're not taking it up anymore, taking out home any more money than you used to be, but that's not out of, that's out of our hands. That's the market. What is in our control is how much taxes you pay. And then therefore what we spend those taxes on. So you get into a a mindset, a individualist, panicky mindset that is totally understandable because you're in crisis that all I can do to stay ahead of the eight ball here uh, is vote to get lower taxes because I know I'll get them. The Democrats will promise me X, Y, Z, but the Republicans lower taxes. So that means I I get more money and it's like I've totally normalized the fact that I'm being more exploited. And the thing is, what else are they supposed to do? There's no more institution that can embody their greater aspirations. They've been dissolved. And, you, and the National Labor Relations Board and the Department of Labor get staffed with pro, uh, cap, uh, pro-business people, uh, former capitalists themselves who are just there in government for a few years to ride herd on uh, the, these, uh, these cocky unions. And, and union uh, the capacity to organize is dismantled. And one of the big set pieces of that is, of course, the Patco strike when the uh, air traffic controllers who endorsed Reagan in 1980 because Carter had been such an enemy of and labor and so hostile that they thought they might get uh, to a better deal with Reagan, not realizing how far they were going to go because, boom, they got fucking wiped out. They got uh, fired en masse, and it just put a shock through the entire labor uh, movement, put them on the back feet. Uh, so the economy is now just a series of bubbles from now on, and then they start popping through the 80s. The first one to pop is the savings and loan uh, industry. Savings and loans were known hilariously as thrifts, where these New Deal era organizations like fucking Jimmy Stewart in uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, they were supposed to allow for community level uh, retail banking that would give high interest rates uh, to savers that would then allow for the extension of mortgages to uh, people who were in the, uh, within the savings and loan uh, uh, membership. Now, the, the, this business model is just getting annihilated 
by um, by deregulation. It cannot handle it, and it should have been fucking euthanized. But instead, it was allowed to metastasize into this just ridiculous bubble uh, that uh, went way that made them inflate way beyond any ability to uh, substantiate the speculation, and so it popped. A lot of it were slush funds for fucking contras and pedophiles. Uh, that that is sort of a thing they don't talk about here. That I would really like to read a book specifically about. Uh, it's about uh, the way that savings and loans were used by like local political uh, uh, power structures uh, to like distribute uh, patronage and launder money. Uh, I'd like to know more about that. They don't really talk about it uh, because there was so much fraudulent underwriting. They were just making up. Numbers and so, of course, you can make that money go anywhere. Of course, it will. Uh, and, if, and if you can't sustain it, it pops, and then they're out. The government has to pay back all this money. Uh, it's always a, an injection of liquidity saves the day. Uh, the thing that saves the market after SSNLs is mortgage-backed securities. This is a thing that is a solid gold investment, and it becomes a huge source of foreign capital flowing into the United States. Uh, people are buying up mortgage-backed securities, and it. it, it prop back up that uh, industry. Because remember, that had been one way of funding people's homes. Get a, get a nice, stable interest rate mortgage from a family, from a neighborhood uh, thrift where your money's in Steve's house and it's in Bill's house. That's gone. And instead, we have a deal where you can get a mortgage from whoever will offer you the most enticing interest rate in the moment. You can get it at a consumer level. And that allows for much bigger uh, securitization. It allows you to, to uh, allows you to trade the shit and speculate on it. This leads to, uh, among other things, a huge collapse of uh, independent banks, like Huge consolidation around big regional power, powerful banks, which, of course, is totally inevitable in a situation like this. 36% of all independent banks in the United States closed between 1979 and 1994. I thought that was a wild statistic. Um, so uh, this new emphasis on derivatives and things like bonds, securities, and tr uh, leads to uh, an opportunity to make a lot of money trading this shit and doing the actual facilitating of the trades. And that's where... Or, uh, Firms like Golden Stacks become like the huge powers that they end up being is in trading these bonds and trading these securities. Uh, and a lot of this is money flowing into the U.S. to buy t treasury bonds because with the Volcker shock, those interest rates are so attractive that foreign money from Japan, from Europe, just flooded the United States uh, in the 80s. Um, and that money had to be managed. Uh, and one thing that these uh, instruments did is that they blended different types of capital, different rates of uh, interest, different uh, ex currency exchange rates, and it allowed them to, uh, to synthesize those things, to work out those, uh, those incongruities uh, within uh, like one synthetic um, – commodity like you can buy it and you have within it guaranteed uh the translation basically across interest rates and time frames 
and uh, and, and exchange rates. Um, and this new, these new instruments then become uh, the thing that creates a like a real global financial structure because now you have something that like you know. Uh, is like the petrodollar in that its circulation guarantees all the other uh, transactions. And so it facilitates this, the realization of this global capital. Uh, and one of the things, ironically, that fuels this money that's coming in to invest here is not from foreign countries, it's from pensions. Because you still have a lot of people who had gotten pensions uh, as part of their union uh, uh, contracts that they still had. And that money had to be invested somewhere while they waited for it to put it out in checks. And so this, because of no huge, huge flow towards uh, the, the der- derivatives market and makes pensions and the, uh, dependent on the success of these institutions. So the, the, because of all this money flashing around and all these new ins- instruments, Glass-Steagall, uh, even though they repealed it in 99 or whatever, uh, it was already a dead letter in reality by this point. It just could not uh, keep up with the speed of things. Uh, and then, of course, and we can't forget talking about the Volcker shock, how uh, it, the rise of interest rates leads to the overall, overnight almost default of almost all of Latin America who, couldn't, who were uh, depending on the ability to, to continue to service uh, uh, one level of interest and then were totally incapable. It's like when uh, the APRs changed in 2009. It's like, we can't pay this. And the U.S. Uh, bailed them out with structural adjustments, but the money did not go to the uh, countries. The countries had to make do with their domestic product. It was not an investment into anything. It went to the banks that had underwritten the debt because the fantasy of risk under the justifying capitalism uh, is that there is any chance to this stuff, that these people aren't being held in the everlasting arms of, of the state, which they claim to be different from. At every level, it's a pantomime. So that's more money flowing into the system. That's more just a direct, direct uh, state influx of cash uh, into this uh, financialized economy. All that, of course, leads to another more general bubble. Thing gets too fast, gets ahead of its skis. And then you have Bloody Monday in 1987. And, and it's a huge crash, bigger percentage fall than on, uh, than on uh, what was it, Black Monday? Black Friday, the, the, the one in the 29th. Uh, more, a, a larger percent drop, but instantly re- uh, met with liquidity, which, of course, the institutions to do that didn't exist in 1929. Now, though, you have a bump like that, boom, instant liquidity. <coughs> so the fucking stock market gets back up and is zooming until the early aughts. It's this unprecedented boom time. And during this period, the U.S. uses a threat of protectionism because, you know, even though you have this huge uh, stock market boom, you have wages stagnant and unemployment up in manufacturing sectors. People are losing their jobs, their good uh, union jobs, and are having to live more precariously. And it's causing a real politics of protectionism. And they mostly just, at government level, use it cynically to force free trade regimes on foreign countries. We, we used it as, a, as, as, the, as the pry uh, against Mexico and Canada to be like, look, we don't want to do tariffs and fuck you people out of being able to export to us. But our domestic politics is making us. So you have to give us a deal on this shit. 
so that we can provide them with cheap imports to make up for the fact uh, that their wages aren't going down or that they make less money than they used to. Uh, so you have a big boom, and as I said, profits up, uh, but wages flat. All of this because of uh, increased technology and uh, increased productivity brought about by technology, which used to be distributed uh, more broadly uh, across the, the labor divide, but is now wholly hoarded. Profit is wholly hoarded. So uh, so that's stagnant. So you have a stagnant ring glass at the end of this. And then there's four key shifts in the U.S. Uh, uh, economy during this period uh, that put it on a completely different footing by the turn of the millennium. One is the shift from manufacturing to finance that we talked about. Manufacturing went down. I mean, we still manufactured. And we, and there was manufacturing. There was manufacturing investment in the '80s too, mostly from Japan. But uh, but you know, moving from high wage union states to low wage non union states, mostly. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the percentage of the economy, the spent the percentage of corporate profits that went to uh, finance went from seventeen percent, roughly year to year, from nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty four to 30% from 1984 to 2007. Uh, so you get this financialization of the economy and therefore the, uh, the rise of shareholder value as a framework for understanding regulations, uh, fucking morality itself. Shareholder value is the closest thing there is to a moral heart to capitalism. And it's just the profit motive enshrined as a religion. The religion of he has it, therefore he deserves it. Uh, that becomes the dominant ethos of capitalism, which makes it much more short term, which leads to accelerating cycles of bust, accelerating a crisis within the institutions, which we're now living through. Uh, but they can't be stopped because there is no working class resisting it. Uh, no, number two, uh, you see that, that what, what I was talking about earlier, the shift in manufacturing internally from high wage uh, Midwest to the low wage South and South Southwest. Uh, and the introduction of like mean product, lean production te- techniques, the kind that were pioneered in Japan where the working class is much weaker and therefore much more of uh, the sort of efficiencies that capitalism tried to impose to shore up profits in the early seventies that were resisted in Europe and the United States by the organized working class being like, I'm not doing that. In Japan, they said, okay, I'll do that. Because they did not have sufficient uh, organizational capacity to resist it. And since organizational capacity is exactly what the U.S. left had lost, or the U.S. working class had lost, uh, they were able to impose it. The lean systems of production, which increased uh, exploitation. Then you have the boom, and this is the thing that really made sure that the United States was always going to maintain its uh, its hegemony as the, as the world currency uh, is that even though you know you've got advanced capitalist economies developing in Japan and in Europe, the United States dominates the high tech production sector, not just computers but pharmaceuticals, bio uh, uh, biotech, all that stuff. The United States was they absolutely dominated the entire world at that, and as such uh, had a had a advantage over everyone else in. Uh, get, uh, gathering capital, keeping capital on uh, flowing within the American uh, sphere, 
not 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 losing that precious buying power. Uh, and then fourth, the rise of professional services. This is the David. This is the these are the David Graeber bullshit jobs. Consultants, uh, administrators, uh, the people, the jobs that you're offering uh, the broad middle and working class, their kids, I should say, because you've offered a house to the the one generation. Now, the next generation coming up, you're not going to get a house, maybe, uh, or you'll be able to get a house, but you're going to pay a lot more and it's going to take you longer, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's going to get worse over time. uh, but you can still aspire to it. You can still aspire to a middle class. And that, but now, instead of that being something that anybody who went to high school could do, anybody who learned to stand in a line could do because that was accessible to uh, working class people, people with un, no advanced degrees who are using their bodies, exploiting their labor power uh, in order to generate surplus. Now, that path is closed. Those jobs are gone and going away. But these new jobs are there, but you have to go through the hoops. You have to go through uh, additional social hoops. You have to provide more levels of financialization and profit. You have to turn this transaction into a trance of transactions that they can be chopped up, purchased, and, and swapped. I know MMT describes how state currencies created work for the It doesn't matter. You're like the Georgists. You think that because it's right, it means it'll win. It's an interesting factoid, but it is not the fucking Archimedean lever to move the world. That is, I'm sorry, nerd shit to think so. So you have this new creation of a new class. You want to call it the professional managerial class, whatever. It is a new, I wouldn't say it is a new, uh, is it a new class? That's interesting. Uh, You honestly might call it a new class in that it is something that is post-class. It is a post-class. That you can't talk, once once the heart of the working class, the labor movement is pulled out, once that like drivetrain of the left, broadly understood, is removed, you can't really talk about... Uh, fuck, what was it anymore? All right, so you don't have classes anymore because what is organizing people along a class axis? Nothing. Consumer access. Racial access, gender access, uh, demographic access, demographic uh, representative, consumer. Yes. They have jobs. People have jobs. They are extractive to one degree. If you're paid by, if you're paid by another to do it, you are alienated. There's no uh, getting rid of that. You do not control the conditions of your work. Therefore, you are not. Uh, you are at one level or another of proletarianization as opposed to the capitalist who is on the other side of that uh, transition. They are, then their whole political agenda is staying there. That's why there could be no national socialism. 
because the imperative to stay at the top will dissolve all of the uh, flimsy moral architecture that gets along people who are in it for confused but real human uh, interest as opposed to just being a monstrous demon mouth. Oh no, I, I, I violated orthodoxy about the Volcker rate or something. I don't know. The Volcker rate hike actually isn't that important to a lot of this stuff. It really was the uh, creation of these uh, liquidity uh, in these structures, these things that instantly pump liquidity into capitalism at moments of crisis, which is a state intervention, but also then like the removal of regulators on speculation. That's what really did it. Uh, that was just one structure that helped drive it in a direction. Because, again, I don't care what really caused inflation sminchmation. It was a totem of discipline to labor. Everything revolved around it, and that's what it accomplished. And one of the things that accomplished is by financializing the lives of workers, they, told, they facilitated an uh, intensification of their social alienation. Uh, so because I said, instead of people buying things with money they earned, they started buying it with money they had borrowed. And that, that is a soul eater. And it certainly eats away your ability to imagine being politically... Uh, uh, Effective, like to have a political voice. So when we're that when we're talking about the response to this, this is what we're talking about. Who cares what they actually did? Nerd shit. I'm sorry. I'm talking at the level that where things actually move. And that's why we can't speak of classes anymore, because the existence Sufficient to build class consciousness no longer exists. So it doesn't make sense to talk about classes other than as academic categories. The problem is if we only address academic subjects, we could only, we'll only ever use academic categories. Because what other categories are, uh, are relevant? And so we can only have academic answers. Trying to argue who is the working class is a literal waste of time. Mm -hmm. It can be fun, but it's a waste of fucking time. Because you're talking about, like, who uh, Barry Bonds better than Babe Ruth. We live in a reality of post-class. We have to reckon with what that means. All right, I got I to gotta cut it off here, guys. I will... I only did one chapter, but uh, I think maybe like early next week, I'll drop in and do the second one uh, and then do the next two on Friday still. Bye-bye.